history tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 30th episode of the History Goes Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. And today's show, we are featuring Aokigahara Forest in Japan. So we're going to be traveling over into Asia today. And when you talk about this forest, one of the things that people need to know about it is that it has a nickname. It's called the Suicide Forest. So one of the things that we're going to discuss in today's show is the topic of suicide and also what it has to do with Japanese culture. Now, we know there's a lot of people who are depressed out there in the world, a lot of people that sometimes think that the answer may be suicide for them. We've always looked at suicide as being a permanent answer to a temporary problem. And, you know, we've watched a lot of high-profile people do it. Uh, Robin Williams, you know, this last year, it was uh, very shocking to have that happen. And there's just a lot of people you would never know that they're in that depths of pain and sorrow that that seems to be the best answer for them. Right. And that's definitely suicide is so self-consuming that they can't see outside of that. I had a girl talking to me one time and she's like, no, it's not that they're self-centered. They just can't hear anybody because they're so depressed. And I'm like, which is the epitome of self-centeredness, you know, not saying I think people get the wrong idea of that. But when something consumes somebody so deeply that they can't see either what their life is holding, what gifts they bring to people, it's like the full darkness of complete self-centeredness. Well, and this is something that you and I are both familiar with, too, because there were times in our lives when it seemed like it would be the answer to whatever problem we were facing. Exactly. Thankfully, we didn't do that. And we hope that none of our listeners ever take that measure either. We are always open to listening to whatever you have to say. You can always email us at historyghostbump at gmail.com. And we also wanted to share the suicide prevention hotline. If you are feeling like you need to talk to somebody about that is 1-800-273-TALK. And that's T-A-L-K. And there's also a website that you can go to at www.suicidepreventionlifeline.org. Interesting little tidbit about suicide prevention hotlines. Do you know who used to do that kind of work that's pretty famous out there? Well, I just found out recently, but that would have been uh, Mr. Ted Bundy. Yes, for people who don't know, Ann Rule wrote the book on Ted Bundy. And the reason why she was such an expert on him, because she was a former deputy sheriff, and she used to work at a suicide prevention hotline. And the guy who sat right next to her and did an awesome job at it was Ted Bundy. So she knew him personally, and she continued her correspondence with him and talking to him all the way up until his death. And so she definitely has written the definitive book about that. But it just goes to show that, you know, there could be one person out there who death is the thing that they bring to people, and yet he was trying to save people from taking that path. It's weird dichotomy there. Yeah, very much a yin and yang right within his own personality. Exactly. Today's moment in oddity, we are going to be featuring sword swallowing. It's something that I've always been fascinated by ever since I was a kid. And I know I used to think, oh, they must have a trick sword. That I mean, that's what I thought, because I'm like, there's no way, because I was just like, I, even as a child, I knew a little bit about the human body. I'm like, that could not fit through all of that stuff without cutting something open, you know? 
like uh, as far as like the esophagus and the stomach and I'm just like, it's too long. It would slice something open. Yeah. And I mean, humans, we are born with a gag reflex. You stick your finger or anything back there, you're going to gag. I can't even brush the back of my tongue like they tell you Mm -hmm. to without gagging. Sure. So as you get older, you come to find out, no, there's no trick sword involved. They're literally swallowing swords. And actually, this broadcast is going to be going out before the end of February, February 28th of 2015. So if you're listening into the future, this date won't matter to you. But it's always the last Saturday of every February is World Sword Swallowing Day. So this year, 2015, it is on February 28th. So this Saturday, head out to your nearest Ripley Auditorium and you will see sword swallowers doing their thing. And as a matter of fact, uh, one of our friends over there at the Curioso Podcast, Christopher Scarborough, is a sword swallower, and he will be partaking at the Baltimore, Maryland auditorium that they have up there. And I'd gone over, they have a group over at Facebook, like our Spectacular crew, and it's Curiosos. And I posted an article up over there about a Dallas woman who's going to perform sword swallowing, and she's nine months pregnant. And that's what she's going to do this year. Well, lo and behold, that Christopher has a friend. Her name is Jill Fleet. And she actually did sword swallowing through three of her pregnancies. That's crazy. Um, I mean, and I don't mean that in a bad way. Like, no, no, I'm not doing it's crazy, but that's yeah. just like, we're wow. not saying that she's crazy. It's amazing. That's yeah. what it is. It's amazing. not crazy. It's amazing because, and we'll get into it when we do the moment oddity to talk, discuss a little bit about how you go about doing sword swallowing, but to be able to do that when you're pregnant and your body changes and stuff, that really is amazing. And, and she said all of her children turned out healthy and normal or, you know, normal according to <laughs> us odd people, what we consider normal, I guess. But odd people seem to be happier than uh, quote unquote normal people. I've met a lot more upset people in that that category than in the oddity ones. <laughs> so uh, good luck to Christopher Scarborough over there at the Curiosos yeah. as he does his little uh, sword swallowing for everybody. Go, Christopher. Also, we got another five star review over at iTunes from Hide a Sword, so we greatly appreciate that. Thank you so much. If you guys would like to uh, send some love our way over at iTunes or at Stitcher, we'd love to have your reviews of the show. Yeah, we love reading the reviews because it's really nice to know what our listeners are thinking and, and it just brings us closer to you all. And then, Denise, we got some feedback from a couple of listeners and they both are named Bob. It's the month of Bobs. <laughs> I think we should declare this National Bob Week. Yes, and the really cool thing is no matter what, if you spell it backwards or forwards, you still got Bob. Hey, you can't misspell that name. Nope. So first of all, we've got uh, Bob gave us a little uh, comment over at the Spectacular Crew says, good evening, Diane and Denise. I just wanted to thank both of you for providing such great and well done shows. I always check History Goes Bump first for new shows. My first choice when opening up the paranormal page via TuneIn Radio. And speaking of TuneIn Radio, it was kind of an afterthought for me to put our show up over there, but I thought "Ah, I'll go ahead and do it. We've got 100 followers over there. So thank you, everybody at TuneIn who are tuning in. We really appreciate your support. Bob goes on to say, I love the opening music, the humor throughout the show, and love the This Moment Naughty History. In fact, I just thought I would Google Moment Naughty History, and sure enough, History Goes Bump popped up. Pretty cool. Keep up the great work. Have a spectacular night, Bob. So thanks so much, Bob. Greatly appreciate that. And our other Bob gave us a comment over at the website, historygoesbump.com. And this Bob is... Also a painter. We we had another painter who gave us a comment. So apparently we have a lot of painters out there. So shout out to painters. Absolutely. And if you're bored, um, our house needs painting. So come on down to <laughs> Central Florida. We've got a lot of white walls. I mean, our walls are exactly the color white that you have when you first move into a home. And 
we haven't dared to change them yet. We can't decide colors and things. And painting is not a cheap prospect either. And I think I make Diane a little bit nervous since I did put like a royal purple carpet in our princess room. So she's like, stay away from the paint. Yeah, my luck will have hot pink walls. Hey, it matched the princess races. Woohoo! So Bob has to say over at the website, in the last few weeks, you've had a show about Rockwood which I've had the pleasure to paint, parts of it, not all. Isn't that awesome? That's very cool. So here we have a listener who's been in there, and uh, not only just to tour it, but he's obviously seen it up close and in person. And just yesterday, you talked about the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, which years ago I painted for a gentleman whose father was the coroner who took care of the bodies. And I even held one of the bullets that was pulled from said bodies. Pretty amazing. And pretty... Yeah, that is very cool. Also, being as I work alone in many old buildings, I've had the pleasure to see several quote-unquote ghosts over the last 30 years, including a white lady at an old Victorian mansion in Wilmington. These ghosts have never scared me, which is odd because I spook easily. Mostly they've left me with a sense of awe. So in conclusion, I will say that history not only goes bump, but is also often quite full of coincidences. Take care, you guys. I really think both of you are extremely groovy, and I hope someday to have the pleasure of meeting you. We we hope to meet you as well one day, Bob. That would be great. And I would love to hear some of his stories of his ghostly experiences. We like to share those uh, on our bonus casts, and also Halloween is a big time. The uh, Halloween special, we always share people's personal stories. That would be very cool. And I especially like that he said we were groovy. That's because Denise is a hippie. And Diane is becoming one. <laughs> Maybe not, but I'm not really a hippie. Oops, I just got a look. <laughs> well, if we're talking about hippies, you know, in the days of free drugs and free sex, no. But as one with nature and kind of that, um, well, you don't do the breathe the blue light thing either, but you just, I don't know, you can be very earthy and laid back and that kind of stuff. I just believe in love. And you dress kind of hippie-ish sometimes. No, that's stylish now. It's retro. <laughs> it's all coming back. <laughs> and uh, we just mentioned that we got the comment over at the website. Make sure you check out historygoesbump.com. It's got everything you could possibly want to know about the show, where to listen to us, where to find us on social media, how to donate to the show, or if you want to sign up for the newsletter, you can do it there. And Denise, if people want to give us feedback like this, where can they reach us? They can reach us at historygoesbump at gmail.com. And one last thing, we do get a kickback. If you buy anything from the History Goes Bump Emporium, you can find that at historygoesbump.com as well. Just click on the tab. And from February 27th of 2015 to March 4th of 2015, the Emporium is offering $5 off any order that is over $30. And you just put in the special code. It's Go Green, all one word in caps. Go Green, and you can get $5 off of a $30 or plus purchase there. Yeah, so you notice it's not me talking about going green. It's the other girls. So who's a hippie? Okay, should I explain? It's Spreadshirt <laughs> is doing a special deal for St. Patrick's Day. Oh, That's what the green is for. <laughs> but we love the green grass, too. <laughs> Why don't we get started with the show before we drive our listeners away? That sounds like a fabulous idea, Miss Diane. like to support the show please visit our patreon page at patreon.com forward slash history goes bump or perhaps you just want to make a one-time donation click the donate button on our website at historygoesbump.com
this moment in oddity history. The last Saturday in February of every year is officially World Sword Swallowing Day. Events are hosted at the various Ripley Auditorium locations around the world. Sword swallowing is an ancient practice with origins in India dating back to 2000 BC. Shaman and priests were the first to practice the art of sword swallowing, and they used it not only to awe crowds, but to make people think they held special powers. While special powers are not involved, special skills are required. Sword swallowers need to learn how to master their bodies, particularly their gag reflex, both externally and internally, and they must maintain focus. Most train themselves slowly using fingers and small objects to master the gag reflex, and then dull, sharp swords are used as the performer works up to longer swords that can reach 25 inches in length. Performers lubricate the swords with oil or saliva, and sometimes they'll eat a large meal to distend the stomach. Sword swallowing spread from India into the Far East and throughout Europe, where the practice was condemned by the Catholic Church. Street performers continued the practice anyway. Sword swallowing came to America in 1817 in an exhibition hosted in New York with Indian fakir Shana Sama performing. The art then became a regular part of sideshow oddities and vaudeville shows. The Chicago World's Fair also presented sword swallowing. This is a very dangerous practice with swords passing within centimeters of vital organs, and it is stunning to witness. And, of course, a bit odd. up tight. That chill you feel isn't the air conditioning. <laughs> this day in history. On this day, February 24th in 1983, the Commission on Wartime Relocation and Internment of Civilians that had been established by Congress in 1980 issued a report about a black spot in American history, the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. The Congressional Commission report condemned the action and stated that it was, quote, grave injustice, end quote, that came from racial prejudice, war hysteria, and failure of political leadership. The report also found that the relocation and internment of Japanese Americans was not only unnecessary when it came to the military and security, but that President Roosevelt deserved most of the blame. The Japanese celebrated the report by printing the story about the report on the front page of all their newspapers. Asians had endured much discrimination over the decades as they immigrated to America, but it intensified after the Empire of Japan attacked Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. President Roosevelt authorized Executive Order 9906 on February 19, 1942, which gave General DeWitt, who commanded the West Coast area, authority to do pretty much anything he wanted with the Japanese Americans. It began with curfews, which evolved into internment in detention camps. Enforcement stopped in 1944, and the last camp was closed in 1946. Executive Order 9906 was not officially rescinded until President Ford revoked it in 1976. Nearly 120,000 people of Japanese ancestry were interned during World War II. History Goes Bump Podcast.
At the base of Mount Fuji in Japan lies a forest that is 14 square miles in size and is referred to by some as the Sea of Trees. The forest's official name is Aokigahara Forest and is known for being very quiet. Aokigahara is notorious, though, for its reputation as a place people go to die by their own hand. Most people call this wooded area the Suicide Forest. There are rumors that demons run the place, and tales of hauntings are numerous. Mount Fuji is the highest mountain in Japan, and it is a dormant volcano. It's not erupted since the 1700s, but through its previous eruptions, it formed a bed of volcanic rock that the Aokigahara Forest sprang from. The floor of the forest is so hard that it is difficult to use a shovel or pick to dig. The trees are thick and twisted, and very little animal life lives in the forest, and no birds are ever heard singing. The tree roots snake across the surface of the forest floor like fingers reaching out to curl around visitors, never allowing them to leave. The forest is treacherous to walk through at times, with areas being cloaked in almost total darkness, and caves dot the landscape hidden so well in the topography that people could easily fall into them. The terrain is rocky and uneven. Hikers often get lost here. Some carry tape with them to mark their way, as though in a modern-day fairy tale about Hansel and Gretel. Well, that, you know, when you just read that, you're like, no life is living in there, and then people commit suicide. It does almost make you think that something demonic or dark or oppressive is in that forest, because animals love you know, places like that, wooded places with lots of trees. So it is kind of creepy that no animal wildlife is in there. And no birds singing. It just, it does make you wonder if it just has that oppressive of an atmosphere or that some, even birds don't want to, yeah, to be there. The energetics must be very negative or something to keep, because yeah, birds just love trees and that's where they live. So. And I believe this probably is a pretty negative, I don't think this is a place that I would want to hike for enjoyment. It looks like a gorgeous place for photography. The trees are amazing to look at. Google Aokigahara Forest and you'll see some amazing stuff. And the uh, spelling on that is A-O-K-I-G-A-H-A-R-A. And it's just just twisting. And so it's, it's beautiful in a way for photography and that kind of thing. I don't know that it would be a beautiful place to go hiking. You know, I just kind of thought of this analogies you were talking but earlier in the show when you were kind of talking about depression when you were letting people know you know about the hotlines and stuff you said it's hard to believe that people with such bright lights have such a darkness living underneath that they end up taking their own lives and you don't even see it isn't it funny of the the commonality mm. that this is an absolutely gorgeous force that looks very inviting for the photography for the beauty of nature and yet when people go in the darkness is like it swallows them just yeah. like when people talk about the darkness and depression, they say it's like it swallows them. Exactly. Yeah. It's just a weird analogy. Definite. Suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. It is never the right solution. Nearly 1 million people make that choice every year. Some people choose to go quietly while others choose a more grandiose exit. There are places on earth that have earned reputations as great places to die. These places include the Eiffel Tower, the Nanjing Gansi River Bridge, Niagara Falls, and the Golden Gate Bridge. Aokigahara Forest usually ranks one or two on a list of places to die with nearly 108 suicides every year. Most forest trails have signs indicating the distance to different spots along the route, but at Aokigahara, suicides are so prevalent in the forest that signs have been erected all over inside of it encouraging people to live and seek help. Annual body searches have been carried out since the 70s. 
The Japanese have a certain practice they follow when a body is found in the forest. The body is brought to a special room in a building near the forest. Someone remains in the room as a type of sentinel, not even leaving at night. As one might imagine, the job of staying overnight with a dead body is not one that most people want. The guards actually play rock, paper, scissors to see who will get stuck with the duty. It is important to have a guard or else the ghost of the dead person might haunt the building, screaming and acting deranged. Yeah, so can you imagine, you know, in our forests here, you'll have people who every year might do an annual cleanup or maybe we're going to repair the trail or boardwalks, something of that nature. In this forest, they have an annual body search. That's how often it happens. And obviously people know if you're going out there to commit suicide, nobody knows that you're there, generally speaking. And so they won't know unless they go out and find these bodies. And, you know, sometimes they've been out there for a long time. And I can't imagine that that's like, okay, we're going to do this year's annual body search. See what we find. Yeah, it's just... It's another reason not to go hiking there because that's the last thing you want to come across. Right. And isn't it true even here that many, many bodies, you know, usually ours aren't suicide as much in the forest here in America, but many bodies are found by hikers that of people mm-hmm. who've been um, victims of homicide. Definitely. I mean, that's, that's where people get dumped, is in these wooded areas a lot of the time. Why has suicide become so popular here? Some blame a 1960 novel by Seicho Matsumoto, named in English Black Sea of Trees, with a plot featuring young lovers who commit suicide in the Aokigahara Forest. The lore of the forest goes back much further than the 60s, and is steeped in Japanese culture. The Japanese used to follow a tradition called ubasuti, which loosely translated in English means abandoning an old woman. During times of famine, and sometimes at other times, the elderly or infirm were taken high up on mountains or into forests, and they were left to die of exposure and dehydration. It's believed that Aokigahara was one such location where ubasuti was practiced. A Buddhist poem tells one such story, In the depths of the mountains, who was it for the aged mother snapped, one twig after another, heedless of herself, she did so for the sake of her son. And so what this poem is telling is the story of a son who's carrying his mother into the mountains to leave her to die there, and she's making sure to snap the branches so that he can find his way back out. It's just amazing when you look back in in ancient cultures, like sometimes the elderly were so revered, you know, that... They were like almost became like shaman and holy people that everybody went to. And then in other cultures, it was like, okay, you're kind of, you know, dead weight. So we're going to take you out. But I mean, they did it in, I guess, honorable ways, but take you out and leave you to die of exposure. I mean, wouldn't it be kinder just to kill them? Yeah, I can't think of a worse way than to let somebody starve to death or, or dehydrate to death. I mean, I guess it does happen here in America. When you unplug people from feeding tubes and things, it is kind of the same thing, only at least Mm. here we have measures for pain management so that you can try to offset that, whereas this is just your left. But there is a huge difference as these aren't people that are on machines that are basically brain dead or going because that's true. And there is no pain management, like you said, but this is just like, okay, you're getting old, you're getting elderly or you've just gotten sick. So we're just going to take you out and let you go away. And it should be pointed out that this is illegal in Japan now, of course. Yes. But we're trying to establish why in the world is this forest become such a dark place. And this is one such reason is because not only do you have the depression that goes with suicide, but now we have what kind of loneliness and depression and fear 
comes from being left in a forest by yourself. Exactly. And, you know, it is interesting how much suicide is also an honorable act. So it might even be something that by being left that they're committing suicide in a way by letting somebody take them out there and that in a way they're honoring their people because as we're getting ready to tell tell everybody about suicide is very much um, has been, I don't know, celebrated is the right word, but in Japanese culture it is not uncommon to have things with suicide. No, of course, America has its roots in a, a Judeo-Christian tradition. And so for most people in America, they look at suicide as a sin. Uh, it's illegal, obviously, according to our law as well, to kill yourself. So not the same way in Japan, at least in the past. They are trying to change that now. Mm-hmm. But when you have something that's so deeply rooted in your culture, it's a very hard thing to change. And I don't know. We're, we'll get into it as we're going here when it comes to Japan and this, but it just seems like it's a very celebrated, like you said, it's almost celebrated there. It's, you, oh, that person had an honorable death. They jumped in front of a commuter train. Right. That's honorable. Whereas here we'd be like, that person must have been at the depths of depression or nuts. Exactly. So as we just said, suicide holds a unique place in Japanese culture as well. Japan's suicide rate is the eighth highest in the world. Current trends of suicide have been blamed on economic hardships and work demands, but suicide has long been considered a noble act in Japanese culture. Kamikaze pilots helped lead the Japanese to many victories. These pilots did not fear death, so they would take on very risky missions, and after dropping their bombs, they would turn their planes into missiles by flying them directly into targets on purpose, killing the pilot. And of course, they were definitely very celebrated and considered to be heroes. Oh, absolutely. In Japan. The samurai practice honorable suicide, which is seppuku in Japanese. If the samurai was unsuccessful in battle or meeting certain death, he would use a knife called a tanto that had a short blade and slash open his abdomen with a side-to-side motion. The act was thought to release the samurai warrior's spirit onto the enemy and prevent any kind of dishonorable execution or torture. The samurai would also practice seppuku if he brought dishonor upon himself or did something offensive to the group. If seppuku took place outside of battle, there was an elaborate ritual connected, which usually included a second who would cut off the head of the samurai. The samurai's wife would also kill herself by slashing her own throat. Women were taught how to do this as children. It was not only considered honorable, but was also done to prevent rape. She would tie her knees together, so she died in a dignified pose. Minamoto no Yurimasa is the first person to have practiced seppuku in recorded history. He was a poet, but also a warrior. The Minamoto part of his name represents the clan he belonged to, and he led the Minamoto army in many battles. It was during the Battle of Uji in the Junpei War in 1180 that Yurimasa took his own life. The temple he was defending was taken by a rival clan during the battle. He was shamed by the defeat. Seppuku was used for capital punishment as well and was not abolished until 1873. The last notable case of seppuku happened in 1970. Author Yukio Mishima tried to form a coup d'etat but was unsuccessful. He went to the office of General Kanetoshi Mishita and sliced open his abdomen there while his second, Makakatsu Morita, tried to cut off his head three times. Another man finally finished the deed and then helped Morita with his own seppuku. So this is something that was even ritualized, and people would come and watch it happen when it was something that was either for capital punishment or if it was, you know, a samurai had dishonored himself in some way or his group. 
they would have a whole crowd that would come and he would sit and eat. He would usually be in like a white robe of some sort. And then they would lay the weapon down in front of him, which would be this small blade, the tanto. And then the second was always a highly skilled warrior, usually a friend, who would take the head off, not completely, to a degree where there was still a little bit left so that the head would tip forward. So that it was like still a part of the body and they said it would look like the body was still hugging the head so that it was all still kind of together. You get torn about it is suicide because they have disemboweled themselves basically so they're going to die. But they do have a second who's kind of finishing them off quickly. And in some cases, especially as we got into later years, it was highly ritualized. So they may not even necessarily cut themselves. They might have a fan or a dull knife that would be sitting there and they would reach for it and maybe make the motion signal to the second to go ahead and do it. So it's kind of a toss up of whether that would be considered suicide, although they have agreed to it and this is what they're going through with. Well, in America, we call it assisted suicide. That's true. So that's the good point. It's like having that, that person there. And this is just horrible. This last one that they have recorded in 1970, I mean, he picked a really bad second because it's supposed to be, again, like I said, somebody who's highly skilled. And it does take a lot of skill to take somebody's head, you know, almost off, but not completely because a sharp sword cuts like butter. We've seen Denise and I through Taekwondo, we've done knife and weapons defense. And I remember there was a demonstration that somebody once did. They what was that? It was like a pork shoulder or something. Yeah, it was a big a big piece of meat that they hung yeah, up. Yeah, and they just hung it up on a rope and he took a knife that was very very sharp and just kind of did a little slicing motion. It kind of jiggled the meat just a little bit, but it had laid it open that when he showed the cut that it had made, it had that been on my body, it would have cut me all the way from my my stomach from the front all the way to my spine easily. It would have gone almost all the way through me. Yeah, so to almost take somebody's head off, but not completely, is huge skill. And this guy that he used as a second uh, three times, and he still couldn't. Right. <laughs> and we're also talking, the, the demonstration we saw was with a regular knife. Not that it wasn't sharp, but we're talking a samurai sword. Exactly. So just, just a little interesting tidbits there. Now jumping into the hauntings that happen at Aokigahara Forest, Japanese spiritualists and paranormal investigators believe that the spirits of those who have committed suicide or been left to die in the forest are absorbed by the trees, leading to paranormal activity. So it's almost like they're these sponges that have just, you know, we talk about that stone tape theory where it's like the stone seems to absorb either the situation that's happening and played over like a tape or absorbed that person's spirit, soul, energy, the fear, whatever. They're kind of looking at trees in this forest in the same way that we talk about stones and things of that nature, that it's like the trees just take that in, which is interesting because we have uh, our friend Mark Nixon, who's an author over at Shadows at the Door, and I believe it's .com. He wrote a story that he shared with me that he wrote after he'd gone to Chillingham Castle, which we've covered on the show. And in that story, he talks a little bit about blood and trees and them coming together. And interesting little side note there. Make sure you, if you get a chance to check that out. And the name of the story is All in Good Fun. Go to shadowsatthedoor.com and go down. It's all at the bottom of the very front page there. Uh, you'll be able to find All in Good Fun. And that has a little side note there with blood and trees if you'd like to read that haunted tale there. Skeptics, there's, of course, we're open-minded skeptics, so we understand them looking at this and going, well, I don't know about that. A lot of them are quick to point out that the volcanic floor of the forest contains magnetic iron. And, of course, we know that if you have magnetic type of 
iron or any kind of element like that, it is going to cause compasses to possibly go haywire because compasses work based on magnetic north and that kind of thing. So they say that's the reason why a lot of people get lost in this forest is because when they're using a compass, it just doesn't work. GPS has a hard time, they say. So a lot of skeptics say, well, that's why people get weird feelings or, you know, get lost or something of that nature. But the military and NASA has uh, proven that GPS and compasses work just fine while in the forest. They've tested it and had no issues. And plus, I've never known of somebody who had a compass fail or GPS unless they were maybe getting ready to die of exposure or were trapped and trying to get out and maybe did something, but that's not usually like, oh, my compass doesn't work. I think I'll kill myself, you know? So exactly. a weird feeling or that feeling of kind of fear, there's got to be more than just the compass going haywire, in my humble opinion. I agree. And personally, if I walked into a dark forest with gnarly looking trees that looked alive to me, it would just give you a weird feeling anyway, so... No kidding. I've seen too many movies like um, Lord of the Rings where the trees like come to life and do weird stuff. I, it, the trees in the, the Snow White ride yeah, used to those creep are, me out. Yeah, that, there, this is a kid's ride and I'd be like, okay, those are really creepy. Those, even as an adult going through S- Snow White's scary adventure. Yeah. Those trees, I was like, get me through here, get me through here. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I don't think I would go into a, a weird looking tree forest. Is it possible that such a hotbed for death could be cursed? Obviously, after all the places we've been doing, I have no doubt. Could the darkness that permeates suicide and abandonment possibly call out to dark forces? That I would say yes as well, because I think there's a great darkness when people are depressed. The Japanese have lore about ghosts they call yuri. These yuri are angry or sad spirits. These spirits reportedly come from those who've been murdered or commit suicide and thus have not had either proper burials or good deaths. Emotions like hatred and loneliness or an overwhelming desire for revenge cause souls to be trapped on this plane and unable to leave. Japanese legends claim these souls are left to wander. White forms have been seen gliding between the trees, some possibly beckoning to those who've chosen this place to die. Yuri are heard howling in the forest. People claim that faces can be seen in the bark of the trees. EVPs have been captured as well as ghost pictures along with strange lights. Objects that are set down reportedly move on their own. Hikers claim that the trees feel as if they are pressing in on them and that they move as well. Do the trees live in Aokigahara? Do they soak in the spirit and energy of those who have died in the negativity around them? Is the forest the home of demons? Is this forest haunted? That is for you to decide. Indeed, and there might be some people who hike there and have absolutely no issues. But it seems like it'd be a fun place for demons to hang out because if there's one thing that Satan wants people to do, it's to kill themselves. We see it time and time again, especially when people claim that they are Satanists and then they go out and commit some, you know, satanic crime and then they kill themselves. It's, you know, or like something like Sandy Hook. It just really makes you feel like he's just sitting there dancing. When when you off yourself, that is the ultimate catch for him because not only does he want your soul but if you do that you probably have pretty much condemned yourself we want to thank you guys for joining us for this show we are going to put up a bonus cast this week we're going to be talking about ghosts in the bible so that should be fascinating and we're going to do something fun with this being that it's a, a bonus cast that definitely means number one that it's out of what we normally do on the show but we're also going to do it as if it was being presented to you live and unedited 
So we're not going to have a bunch of show notes to go with it. I might put up some Bible verses or something if people want to go back and, and look at some things that we touch on. But it's just going to be a back and forth, free for all, no editing, whatever comes out, comes out. So. No rules, no nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so not only did I think that would be more fun for people, but uh, to get up another show in a couple of days here, I'm not going to have the time to, to do a whole bunch of editing and extra production value and that kind of thing. So it's going to be raw and we might even throw up some, we've got some more outtakes for everybody to tune into. So I'll probably throw those in there as well. And then the next regular podcast that we're going to do here will be on Oliver House, which you can find down in Arizona. We're going to go down south into the southwest, which at this time, it's uh, winter of 2015, and Boston is buried under, what, 108 inches of snow? Something like that. It's been crazy up in Boston this year. So, uh, yeah, I think some people would like to thaw out in Arizona for a while. Absolutely. We want to thank you guys for joining us today. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. Take care now. Bye-bye. This is Victoria from the Ninth Story Podcast. You're listening to the History Ghost Bump Podcast. History isn't boring. It's terrifying. Especially when it goes bump. Boo!